I have enjoyed uh, my friendship with Talbot. He is one of the greats in this movement, and it's uh, indeed a real pleasure for me to ask you to help me welcome Talbot H. to this microphone. Talbot. Thank you, Hal. I think sometime I'd like to take some of these flowery introductions that you get in AA. Put them on my tombstone. Let the pigeons finish the rest of it. <laughs> my name is Darby Hood, and I'm an alcoholic. This has been a wonderful convention up to now. But since about four o'clock this morning, I've been asking myself, what do you say after it's all been said? I had heard all of our speakers, except Father Jack, and every one of them has a very special place in my heart but I have never heard from these people what they gave this weekend. A week ago I thought I knew what I was going to talk about this morning. And every one of them told a part of it. But as usual, when you don't know and all else fails, you follow directions. And my book of directions today is the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it says that when a thing like me gets up in front of a group of beautiful people like you, he's supposed to try to tell what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. As a rule, that takes a while. <laughs> Hal told me yesterday that we were supposed to hold this meeting to about an hour. He said just now that you had to get out of here by 12. <laughs> that don't leave you a hell of a lot of choice. Through the grace of God, and only through the grace of God, that I didn't know existed until I met you people. And because this program works in my life with the help of literally thousands of wonderful people like you, I haven't had a drink of alcohol or a happiness capsule or serenity pill since July 24th, 1968. And for this, I'm as grateful as I'm capable of being. Not nearly as grateful as I ought to be. Because you see, July 24th, 1968 was not the date of my first introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been around a long time. You can look at me and tell I've been somewhere a hell of a long time.
And I've never been smart enough, really, to do much planning as to what I was going to say in front of a group of people. And the only way I know to do it, really, is to sort of go back and mentally relive it and try to describe it to you as we walk along. This is called, uh, I believe, thinking on your feet, and I'm not too good at that. Not nearly as good as an old judge, they tell about a poem. Seemed that this old judge one night at the dinner table told his wife that after dinner he had to go back to the office and study a case that he had to hand down a decision on in the morning. Bless her heart, she bought that. But it seems that when he got out away from the house, he didn't go to the office. He got with the boys. <laughs> and he took on a few. In fact, a few too many, because sometime during the course of the evening, he regurgitated. Child, that means he puked on his shirt. <laughs> and all the way home, he's thinking, what am I going to tell my wife? Well, he managed to get in without waking up, and next morning at the breakfast table, he very skillfully guided the conversation along other lines. Didn't mention that little incident. And he thought he got by with it. But at the front door, when she handed him his hat, she said, I don't know where you went last evening, but when you came in, there was vomit on your clothes. He didn't bat an eye. He said, a drunk done that. And if he comes before me this morning, I'm going to give him 30 days. <laughs> Evidently, she'd been to a few of them Malanon meetings because she didn't bat an eye neither. She said, you ought to give him 60 days because he done something in your britches too. For years after I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I said I was born an alcoholic. But then I stopped saying that because I realized one day that I honestly didn't know. And then for quite some time I said I became an alcoholic as a result of taking one drink of whiskey. But then I stopped saying that too because one day again I realized that I honestly don't know. But I have come to believe in my years in this beautiful fellowship that because of some things that happened to me way, way back, this God that I didn't know about until I got here saw the necessity in me becoming an alcoholic in order that I might one day be a member of the human race. And my story starts, I guess, with the first recollection I have of being a human being. It happened late one night when I was four years old. And I woke up because there was a loud argument going on downstairs in the room right under me where mother and daddy slept. This was the night that I found out I was adopted. And I didn't know what that meant. But before that argument was over, I was to learn that it meant I didn't belong. 
because this old gentleman that I called dad did not want me there. And this is what that argument was about. This is the first recollection I have of life. The first recollection I have of feeling a human emotion. The most God-awful fear. A fear that even today I can't describe. I didn't belong. And I'm sure that back then, this is all I wanted was to belong. We lived in a little town. No, it didn't. It wasn't no town. It, it was a place, I think, where about 90 people went broke and got stranded. <laughs> Wouldn't nobody have gone there on purpose. But even though it was just a very small settlement, there were two big fine churches. And there was something about that that kind of didn't ring true. There was a Baptist church and there was a Methodist church. My folks were Methodists, and I was told as a small child, you don't go to that one over there. You go to this one. Because them folks that go to that, and they ain't going to make it. And I knew some of them folks that, that went over there, and they were, I thought, better folks than a whole lot of them that went to this one. But even though we did have these two big fine churches, there wasn't money enough in that little settlement to pay somebody to come in and sweep up one of them, much less pay him to preach. So every Sunday morning, different members of the congregation took turns conducting some type of layman service. Except in the summertime, about the time everybody's gardens came in, there'd always be one of these old boys come riding in, usually on a mule, and for some reason, they always came either from West Virginia or Kentucky. They didn't breed them nowhere else. They called them circuit riders. My granddaddy called them something else. <laughs> it seems one of these old boys made a pass at Grandma once. <laughs> and he ought not have done it, because for years that was known as the summer of the short revival. <laughs> But about this time, every year, one of these things would show up, and he'd freeload at somebody's house, and they'd be preaching every night till all the groceries was gone and the collection cut off to nothing. Then you knew it was over till next year. And I remember this particular summer afternoon, I was seven years old, and I was playing out in the front yard, and I looked coming up the lane. There was the biggest man I'd ever seen in my life. He had to be seven feet tall. And I was afraid of it, because we didn't grow them like that. And he rode up to where I was, and he announced that he was a visiting preacher and that he was staying at our house. Had nobody invited him, but that's where he stayed. And there was preaching that night, and they had all us little folks sitting up on the front row where they could watch us. And I remember this old boy, he preached loud and he preached long. He talked for what seemed like hours about God's hate. And not once did he mention the word love. And then he talked for another hour or so seemed like about something he said God hated more than he did anything else. Something called sin. 
And right in the middle of this lecture, he shook his finger right in my face and he hollered, you are a sinner. And he scared me, singling me out in the crowd. And then he talked for I don't know how long about this place he said I was going because I was one of them things. A place called hell. And he told it real scary. And when he cut off or run down, they played what they call the invitational hymn. And I was the first one up to shake hands with him. Not because of any sudden desire to save my soul, because hell seven years old didn't know I had one. And it certainly was not because of any love that I felt for this scary God that he'd been hollering about. I went up, I'm sure, because that old man had scared the living hell out of me. And I mean that literally. Because for weeks afterwards, two, three nights a week, I'd have this nightmare, this bad dream, and I'd wake up screaming. And Mom would have come put me in bed with them. And in this dream, it was always the same thing, over and over. It would be late at night. And outdoors is thundering and lightning and the wind's blowing and trees are breaking off. And me and all these other little people in that community, we huddled together in this little church scared to death. Waiting for this great big scary something to come from way out there somewhere. And get us and take us to this place called hell. And I think it was right along about here that I promised myself. If I ever get big enough to say I ain't going to church, I ain't going. Little did I realize that eight years later, I was to be expelled from the Methodist Church. I was even put out of the mooses. <laughs> and that's hard. But looking back, I realize now that that one unfortunate childhood experience separated me from anything divine. That same year, something else was to happen that I think played a very large part in what I was to become. I was to start the public school. And I had been looking forward to this because I thought maybe when I go to school and there are other children, maybe I'll belong. Nobody had ever told me I looked any different from other children. Some of you may have noticed the scars on my face. I was horribly burned in one of these freak home accidents when I was 18 months old. And this is back in the days when plastic surgery was more or less unheard of in our part of the country. So I didn't get any plastic surgery until I was 20-some years old and pulling a hitch in the army. All the years in between, three-fourths of my face was covered with scars. Couldn't close my eyes, couldn't close my mouth. I didn't have any ears. These two grafted on. But like I said, nobody had ever told me I looked different. And I never had noticed it. And that first day at school, long about the middle of the morning, when they had what we called a little recess, I was late getting out in the playground. When I arrived, all the other little children were in a big circle holding hands going round in the ring. And I tried to get in, and nobody would turn loose to make a place, but I kept trying. And finally, one tough little boy, and he was a little bigger than me, he stopped, of course, this stopped everybody else. And he turned to me, and he said, and I quote, 
you scarred-faced son of a bitch, we don't want to play with you. And he spit in my face. I learned two things about me that morning in just a few seconds. I learned first I was different from other people because I looked different. I learned too that I had an uncontrollable temper that made me a raving maniac fully capable of killing another human being because I almost killed that little boy. He's 57 years old now, just like me, and from that day to this, he's never spoken above a whisper because his voice box was crushed. When the teacher got out in the yard, she asked one question, who hit the first lick? I said, I did. And all them other little, back, little boys and girls, they backed me up. She sent his little sister out to switch, and she come back after a while with a limb off of a cemetery or something, and the teacher made a switch out of it on me. She wrote a note to my folks, sent me home, and all the way home I'm thinking, wait till I tell Mama. She fixed that teacher's wagon. But I guess I'd forgotten about that rule we had at our house, rule that said you get one at school, you get two more, and you get back here. Because Mama read that note, and she didn't say nothing about no teacher's wagon. She just fixed mine again sent me upstairs to bed. Now, I laid up there all afternoon thinking, well, wait till the old man gets home, damn, he'll fix all of them. But I guess I must have cried myself to sleep because when I woke up, the old man was home. And he had that belt off and damn if I won't get him fixed again. Strangely, nobody from that day to this has ever asked me why I hit the first lick. Didn't seem to be important to anybody but me. But that day, I resigned my membership in the human race. And for the next 25 years, until I met you beautiful people, I hated every human being that walked the face of this earth, including my own mother and father. And this is not a healthy attitude, even for a grown person. For an undisciplined seven-year-old, tragic. I had to be whipped two or three times a week and made to go to school because I didn't want to go where people were. I had my own little mule, my own hound dog, and my own rifle. My granddaddy sorted that. This was standard equipment for a little country boy. And every chance I got, I'd get on that mule and call the dog, take the rifle, and I'd leave. And I'd roam the countryside for an area of 25, 30 square miles for weeks, sometimes months, or until somebody saw me somewhere and came and told my folks where I was. And on these little excursions, if I rode up to a place and nobody was home, I set the house afire and I burned them out. I burned down barns and haystacks, cut fences to let cattle in to destroy crops. So these were the things that belonged to the parents of those children that had laughed at me the day that little boy called me that ugly name. And this was the only way I knew of hitting back. And I don't know why hitting back was so important, but it was. I just couldn't adjust to being that thing and being spit on. 
by a group of people that all I wanted was just to be accepted. And I was shot at a lot of times when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And all that did was make the hate that much stronger. Then one night, I was 13 years old, and I was in a house by myself. Mom and Dad had gone somewhere, and I'd been told I had to go to a little girl's birthday party. Didn't want to go, because it'd be a crowd back. And in any crowd, when somebody looked at me, I knew what they were seeing, and I knew what they were thinking, and I just couldn't cope. But that night, I got to thinking about this man I called Dad, the man that I was scared of. And I got to thinking that early in the morning when he came downstairs, everybody was scared of him. Nobody said good morning to this gentleman until after he'd been in the kitchen and gotten that little glass with the sugar and water in it. And he'd go in this little room off the breakfast room and I'd watched him through the crack pouring something in that glass out of that big brown bottle and he'd drink it. Smack his lips like it was so good. And then he'd come out, and in a few minutes, you didn't have to say nothing. You never heard as much conversation come out of an old man. And I reckon I'd been kind of curious about that closet for a long time. Of course, I had been told I was never to set foot in there. Maybe that's what did it. But that night, I went in the closet. No glass, no sugar and water. I didn't know how to make nothing. But I took a full quart of white horse scotch. And I took a whale of a dust cutter, five or six big mouthfuls, and I liked it. And I got about halfway upstairs, and oh hell, something beautiful happened. I grew about two feet right now, and my shoulders got broad, and my hair got all pretty and wavy, and all the scars disappeared. And I had two ears, just like everybody else. And I felt like I belonged. And I think maybe mentally, right along here, I promised myself, I'm going to feel like this for as long as I live. And you know, I tried for a lot of years, and I never quite had that same feeling again. I was either about that much short of it, or I overshot it to hell and gone and missed it when it went by. You know, looking back, I realized that never in my life have I been able to take one drink of alcohol and predict with any degree of certainty where I would go or what I would do. Because what that first drink did for me left me no choice, really, but to go back and get another one and another one and another, and I don't know how many. I don't know how many trips I made to the closet, but I didn't make it to that little girl's birthday party. I woke up or came to next morning about daybreak with the sun shining in my face, right out in my old man's front yard, and that won't never a good place to come to. Now we hear in AA from time to time that you become an alcoholic when you discover that next morning drink. That's when I discovered it, next morning. Because when I come to, my first thought was not, am I going to get a whipping? Hell, I knew that was part of the deal last night. 
my first thought was, can I get through the cold chute, the window, and, and down the cold chute and tiptoe back upstairs to that closet and get one more shot of that beautiful stuff before I get to it. And that's exactly the way the morning went. My old man damn near killed me. <laughs> and you know, I never did learn whether it was for getting drunk or for stealing his liquor. Of course, he had to put a padlock on that closet. But even though I was just 13 years old, it took me less than 20 minutes one afternoon with one of Mama's hairpins jiggling it around in that lock. I opened it. Not because I wanted to be a locksmith. <laughs> but because I was an alcoholic. And that padlock stood between me and something that I had to have. My father was a doctor, and his hospital was next door to where we lived. He had to move his morning toddy over to the hospital, put it in the drug room, lock it up in the safe where he kept his narcotics. But even though I was just 13 years old, it took me less than 40 minutes late one night with my head against the door of that safe, turning that little knob and listening for them clicks. I opened it. Not because I wanted to be a safe cracker, but because I was an alcoholic. And there was something locked up inside that safe that I had to have, because without it I was absolutely nothing. My old man had quit drinking. <laughs> and a quarter of that flit used to last him from one Christmas to the other, but he had quit. No family likes to admit they've got one, but my folks sure in hell had one. <laughs> and it didn't take them long to find it out. And then it became necessary for me to lie, and to cheat, and to steal, and to do a lot of other things that I honestly didn't want to do. I did them for the same reason that you did. I was an alcoholic. I did things that at 15 literally killed my mama. And if there's anybody in this room this morning that has a memory from the past that you have not been able to live with, I'd like to share this with you. The summer that I was 15 it had been two years since I'd seen my mama smile. And she had a beautiful smile. But I'd seen her crying because she cried every day. And I remember this particular Sunday afternoon when the sheriff came to our house. Came to see my father, but he wasn't there. So he told my mama that her little 15-year-old boy had to be in court next morning to answer charges of drunken disorderly assault and battery, resisting arrest and assault in the police house. And I remember when the sheriff left, Mama started upstairs and she was crying. She got up just a few steps and she fell. She had a heart attack and she never got well. And I remember the few short weeks had fallen. I went to see her in the hospital every day, and she loved Emerson's poems, and I read poetry to her, and 
I read to her from the Bible. And she cried every day. And every day, as long as she could recognize me, she begged me over and over to promise her that I would never take another drink. And I remember making all those promises. And I meant them. God knows I meant them. You know I meant them. Not long after she was taken sick, I remember the day she was buried. I didn't sit at the graveside with the rest of the folks. I didn't get out in the back seat of that automobile because I was so drunk I couldn't stand up. Mama cried that day too. She cried a lot of days since then. But you know, beautiful people like you have taught me to honestly believe that my mama's smiling this morning because she knows who I am. And she loves the people I'm with. I think my mama loves every one of you. Not just for what you are, but for what you're trying to make out of me. In the 11th verse of the 84th Psalm, it says, For God is a sun and a shield. He shall give grace and glory. And he shall withhold nothing that's good from those who walk uprightly. That's all that little lady ever wanted from me. Just that I be a decent human being. She used to beg me over and over, just be kind. And I never was. Not even to her. But wonderful understanding friends like you have taught me to honestly believe that my way of living now, one day at a time, walking hand in hand with you as a friend, trying in my feeble way to walk as you walk, uprightly, that every day I do this, I am in some small way making amends to my mom. And yes, she does know where I am this morning. In my junior year of high school, I was suspended several times, I don't remember how many, for going to school drunk or going to school and getting drunk or being drunk in a school play. Early in my senior year, I was expelled from the whole public school system in the state of Virginia. My father sent me to reform school. Three weeks later, they sent me home. <laughs> You get expelled from the reformatory, you get thinking you really ain't wanted. But they said I was a bad influence on them bad influences. <laughs> I was allowed to graduate from high school, though under somewhat unusual circumstances. They assigned little simple things for me to do at home, things that I did back in the fourth and fifth grade. <laughs> and somebody picked them up every week, and they said they graded them, but hell, I know they didn't. They just wanted to make damn sure I never had a chance to come back. And a few weeks after all the rest of them marched up on the stage and got that diploma, they sent me one in the mail. 
Not long after that, this man that I called Dad took me out in the front yard one morning and he says, Boy, I don't know what your trouble is or what you're going to do about it, but you're going to have to do it somewhere else. He said, I want you to get off my place and don't ever come back. And I remember how arrogantly I felt and looked staggering out of his front yard, hating him enough to kill him. And I left there that morning fully confident I could do as well, probably better than this old gentleman had ever dreamed of doing. How stupid can you get? Of course, when I left his house, I went to the only place that was open for a thing like me. Place we called around AA from time to time, Skid Row. And frankly, I wish we'd stop doing that, classifying each other. According to some, we've got high-bottom drunks and low-bottom drunks. And this weekend, I've seen a few wide-bottom drunks. <laughs> but deep down, I don't think there's that much difference in you and me. Years ago, after being sober a while, I was visiting a minister, a friend of mine in AA, and I looked up in his ecclesiastical dictionary a definition of the word hell. And it says simply, complete separation from both God and man. Complete separation from both God and man. And I don't think it matters really whether you sip your champagne out of them long stem glasses in a penthouse apartment with wall-to-wall carpets and velvet drapes at the window. Or if you drank that Polish champagne, that Solox and wine down under the bridge out them cans with me. If in your alcoholism you found yourself completely alone, completely cut off from all those around you, completely cut off from any knowledgeable right to ask anything of a divine power, then you too have been to that place we call hell. As Tom and, and Ray so beautifully said, each one of us had to go where we had to go. But I went to the river bank under the bridge and for most of the next 16 years this was to be a pattern. To drink that wine and go to jail, get out and drink that wine and go to the insane asylum. I heard a story a while back about this little Salvation Army group that was holding some kind of a service on the street corner one Saturday afternoon. They had a little band, they had a drummer and a fellow blowing a horn, lady shaking a tambourine, one ringing a bell, and they had a preacher. And he'd preach a while, and he'd pray a while, and they'd play a while, and they'd sing a while, and he finally he had the crowd pretty well worked up, and he called on this little lady's sister, Sally, to give her testimony. She came up to the microphone and she said, I ain't never drink no whiskey. I ain't never smoke no cigarettes. 
ain't never committed no adultery. She says, I ain't never done nothing except ring this damn bell. Like I said, for most of the next 16 years, all I did was drink that damn wine. And I kept on being spit on and despised, even by my own kind, because I was too unpredictable. There was too much hate in me, too much fear. And from time to time, this hate would just boil over, and when it did, somebody got hurt. I always did, but usually somebody else too. And I moved around a lot. It seemed I was always going somewhere. And yet not exactly that either. I was always leaving somewhere. Trying to get away from something I thought was back there that was responsible for all this. But then late in November 1950 in a place called Lynchburg, Virginia, I left the riverbank one night and I came uptown to get one more bottle of that wine and enough sleeping pills to make sure I never had to sleep on a riverbank again. Because I just couldn't take it anymore. My time had run out. And late that night, sometime between 11 and midnight, I found myself sitting on a dark, lonely, cold, dirty street corner. I was 32 years old, had at one time been a member of one of the ten wealthiest families in the state of Virginia. Had at one time, I'm sure, had some hopes of one day being some semblance of a man. But that night, I reached a point beyond which something inside of me could not or would not go. I hit bottom. Because that night, for the first time in my life, I took an honest look at this thing called Talbot Haygood. And I despised everything I saw. I had a good look at the past and saw nothing but filth and rottenness. A good look at the present and saw more filth and more rottenness. As for the future, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with anything tomorrow might have to offer. And I don't think it was because I so much wanted to die. It was that I could no longer stand to live. Death, even by suicide, seemed much, much better. All I had to show for my 32 years here were the clothes that I had on my back, four pieces, count them shoes separate. I had a 67-cent bottle of wine and a pocket full of nimby towels. Time had run out. And I didn't call on any garden because I didn't think I had a right to. 
because for 25 years I had felt absolutely nothing for this God of punishment but fear and hate. I blamed him for doing something to me when I was 18 months old. Blamed him for making sure that I didn't get by with anything. He punished me to start with. And yes, I hated God with a passion. And I know that with that last swallow of wine, I was going to take every one of those sleeping pills. And I couldn't have been more than two drinks away from that, and I heard men's voices from somewhere in the distance coming towards me, and they were laughing. And I hated their guts because I hadn't laughed since I was a child. And I kind of drew up in a small knot waiting for them to go by, and I knew they would because nobody stopped for me then but the police. But that night a very strange and a very beautiful thing happened. Four men on the way home from an AA meeting not only stopped, but sat down on that cold, dirty street corner for more than two hours and talked to a filthy, stinking thing about something called AA. I'd like to say right here and now that I honestly believe that sobriety in the very beginning for people like us is an outright gift from God. It has to be. I had never wanted to be what I had become. And I had tried in every way I thought humanly possible to change. Because people kept telling me during those years, over and over and over, your kind never changes. God, I hated them when they said that. But I had tried and I couldn't change. And I had finally accepted, not gracefully, but I had simply resigned myself to a life of endless drunken wandering, hating every step of the way. Four of these men stopped. Three of them I knew by reputation. One was a member of Lynchburg City Council. One was an executive in a large construction firm. One was part owner in the largest independently owned department store chain south of the Mason-Dixon line. I had absolutely nothing in common with these people. In fact, they represented something I despised, success, because I'd never tasted that. But the fourth one was one just like me. Oh, I know that I had spent a lot of time on the riverbank with, a lot of time on the chain gang with. We'd frequented many, many times some of the same nut houses. We'd even spent one whole winter together batching in an old abandoned perfume factory there in Lynchburg that had gone bankrupt. <laughs> I remember, I think that was a three-story building with a basement. This old boy's name was Ham Masters, and I remember the name. I may mention him again if I have time. 
Ham and I started out early that fall on the third floor of that building, and we drank and burnt our way all the way to the basement by spring. About the only thing I can say for drinking perfume, even when you puke, you smell good. They got us out of there come spring, and of course we went to jail, but not in the patrol car. Not even in the paddy wagon. We went on a city garbage truck. But we was two sweet peaches. <laughs> but that night when I recognized Ham, I offered him a drink. And he kind of smiled and he says, Tom, but through the grace of God. I haven't had a drink for three years. Hell, I knew nobody had been three years without a drink. Certainly not ham. But you know what shook me more than anything else were those words, through the grace of God. You see, Ham Masters was an atheist. In fact, the last time he and I had been together, we were in the Norfolk City Jail. And he kept the whole jail awake all night, cursing God in language that you and I have seldom heard. And yet here he is, just a few years later, saying in front of people, without any seemingly feeling of embarrassment or shame, through the grace of God, I haven't had a drink for three years. I went with Ham that night. And the reason I honestly believe that sobriety in the beginning is an outright gift from a kind and a loving God is that for 13 years, starting that night, I was not to take a drink of alcohol. It has to be a gift. But because I did not do my homework, because I did not learn all that this program has to offer and its lessons about life. Late in 1962, I found myself in serious financial difficulties. A little business that had been real, real good to me and my family was gone. And I was in possibly in debt because you see something happened to me that happens to a lot of people, new people in AA. I got hooked on this thing we call acceptance because I'll never forget the first night I went to a meeting at the club room. These four men had spent a whole week getting me physically well enough to go to that meeting. As they had spent a whole week telling me about the nice people that I would meet at the club room. I had spent a whole week feeling very much afraid because nice people had never been very nice to me. I had spent a whole week wondering if I would be accepted, not how. 
because I had never been accepted anywhere that I'd ever been in my entire life. And we walked in on that club room that night, a rather small room, a rather small group, some 35 or 40 people. And I realized when I walked in, these people are different. They're not like those that I've been living with on the riverbank. Because the men were clean-shaven. They had on clean clothes. Two or three of them had on a necktie. One smart aleck even wore a coat out of his own coat. And the ladies had the hair combed, had on lipstick, didn't look like got hit in the mouth with it, was on like it ought to be. And they were smiling. Because these were happy people and I knew I didn't belong. But before I could duck out and I was going to, a beautiful little lady from way over on the other side of the room got up and she walked all the way across that room to where I was. And she said, my name is Ruth Dickens. And I'm glad you made it tonight. And she shook hands with me. God, I don't know how many years, I don't know that anybody had ever shook hands with me. And it wasn't one of them flabby, wishy-washy nothings, it was, it was the kind of handshake that said, I know all about you, but I love you. Didn't make sense, but somehow I knew Ruth meant just that. But in the first ten minutes, I shook hands with everybody in that room. And you know, every one of them was just like Ruth. Somehow they knew all about me, but they loved me. And I hope I'll never live long enough to forget how I was treated at my first AA meeting. I was treated like a gentleman. Never had been one. I was treated with respect. Never had felt one, felt any of this for anybody. I was treated with utmost kindness and I had never done a kind thing for anybody in my entire life. I was subjected, I think, for the first time in my life to unselfish love of one human being for another. And I honestly didn't know the meaning of that word then. Every now and then now I see one just like me come into a meeting and he's usually late. He sneaks in because he's scared. And he sits way in the back because he doesn't know that you would enjoy having him sit with you. And after the meeting is over, if I can get to him first, I do. Because in the last few years, I have seen some in AA who have forgotten what it's like to feel completely alone and unacceptable. And I've seen these people look at this old boy and sort of shy away. And he sees it too. And he sneaks out and he'll never come back. 
because he feels that he doesn't belong. This should never happen at an AA meeting. There's a line in that big book, and the first time I read it, I thought it was put there just for me. But it wasn't. It was put there for all of us who are here now and the many, many millions yet to come. It's the line that says something about no case being too pitiful. No one having sunk so low as not to be welcome here. Think about it. The next time a stranger comes into your group, just shake hands. May seem like a small thing to you, but it could very well be the biggest thing that ever happened in his life. It was in mine. Thirteen years after that night, and during that thirteen years I had enjoyed eleven years of what I thought was a good quality sobriety. Two years I was taking them pellets, <laughs> them chemicals. And we used to talk about pills a lot in AA, and I sometimes think we should talk a little more now, but I won't this morning. Except to say that if you're taking a few of them tranquilizers exactly the way your doctor prescribes them, and you're taking them because of some nervous disorder that has absolutely nothing to do with your alcoholism, as far as I'm concerned, you're right but if you're like me and you've got two or three of them doctors that know about this nervous condition, and every one of them has got a prescription for them happiness capsules and them serenity pills, and you're taking them according to your way of thinking, even if you still want to call yourself sober, I have no quarrel with you. But I'll tell you this, if I wake up in the morning with a question that needs a sober answer, I won't bug you with it. At the end of 13 years of being real, real active in this program, doing the best I could with the little that I had, and I had very little, believe me, I think in the very beginning I reverted back to that little seven-year-old boy that first day at school. The little boy who had not been welcome in the playground. AA to me was a big, beautiful playground. And every AA member I met was a little childhood playmate that I never had. And for the better part of ten years, my first trip in Alcoholics Anonymous, people were too good to me. I was invited all over the country to talk, and that's all I did. I had a drunk log that was interesting. I did not have enough of this program to sustain me when things went wrong. Because late in November 1962, I looked around one day and nothing was right. I was broke because I had not managed my affairs very well. 
And to show you how little of this program that I really had, I didn't talk to my sponsors about what I should do. I didn't use the 11th step. It never occurred to me to even consider what God might want me to do in that situation. I simply made a decision on my own. I very deliberately decided to drop out of Alcoholics Anonymous and to work real hard and get this little business back on its feet, take in a partner to do the work, and then go back to AA and take up right where I left off. Some were sicker than others. But sure enough, late 1962, I disappeared from Alcoholics Anonymous, and for five and a half months I worked as hard or harder than I've ever worked in my life. I didn't go to meetings. I didn't have time. I didn't make 12-step calls because I didn't have time. I didn't even have time to drink coffee with sober AA friends. I was too busy working for money for me. And I honestly don't think that I consciously thought about taking a drink during that five and a half months. By the same token, I don't think I consciously thought about not taking a drink. It just never occurred to me that I didn't have a right to do what I was doing. And believe it or not, at the end of five and a half months, things were just exactly as I had planned them to be. The business was in better shape, and I was in better shape financially than I'd ever dreamed of being. That night on the way home, and I had 15 miles to drive from my office, I stopped at a bootlegging joint, and I hadn't been in one for 13 years. I walked in, and I remember thinking or saying to myself, I'm going to take just one and go straight home. That was April 15th, 1963, and I got home sometime in the latter part of June. And I hope i never forget how I felt when I swallowed that just one. All of the fear came back. And all of the hate only this time it was all for me. And I felt filthier inside and out than I had ever felt in my life. I felt like I was exactly what that little boy called me that first day at school. And if any of you have been wondering if you could just take just one, nobody would ever know. If you've been wondering what it's like, let me very briefly tell you what it's like. Sixteen months after I took just one, on July 1st, 1964, when I went before Judge Paige Moden in Charlotte County, Virginia, pled guilty to two charges of driving drunk, two charges of resisting arrest, Two charges of assaulting a police officer, one charge of vagrancy. He gave me six months on the state farm. There was a doctor in the courtroom that morning, and I'm so glad she was there. She convinced the judge that if I was sent to the state farm, I would not live 30 days. I weighed 112 pounds. <laughs> 
So that afternoon, two deputy sheriffs took me to Eastern State Hospital in Williamsburg, Virginia. This is a state-owned and operated insane asylum. And I woke up or came to, and I don't remember how long after I was there, but I was tied to a bed. I never could understand why they always tied me to them damn beds. I won't like Tom. I never fell out of bed in my life, drunk or sober. Never slept in many either, till I got you. And I found out I was in what they call the receiving section. Found out later they don't ordinarily keep a patient in that part of the hospital for 24 hours. It was five days before they untied me. And shortly after I woke up, I realized too that I was not in that room by myself. For locked up in there with me were five naked mental patients. And drunk or sober, you and I can tell the difference. What happened in that room during the next five days, I've never talked about. And I never will. Except to say I think it's criminal to lock mentally deranged human beings in a room and leave them unattended to bite, to claw, to kick, and to mutilate each other while they are watched through a peephole by a breed of creatures that think even this is funny. I've got some brand new scars on me as remind us of that five days. And I'm glad I've got them. I learned shortly after getting out of the receiving section that I was not in Eastern State Hospital on alcoholic papers, but on mental papers. And this too, I believe, is exactly as it should have been. Because if you've got not 13 years or 13 weeks or 13 days, if you have enjoyed for one day the respect of your family, the respect of people all around you, respect for yourself, if you have known for one day in your life all of the wonderful, beautiful things that you ever dreamed of, and you trade it for just one of anything. You're crazy. Just like I was crazy. Forty-three days from the time I was committed to Eastern State Hospital, I escaped. And that first night out, I went to an AA meeting to take up where I left off. After the meeting, there were two winos sitting on the back row. I joined them, and we talked AA for a while, or I did. It was step work, you know. Shortly after that, three winos went out and got a job, and we got drunk. I wanted sobriety more than I'd ever wanted it in my life. I wanted to feel once again that I belonged. But there was to be five hellishly long years 
that I had to go back to that place called hell and to walk its streets barefooted. To feel once again completely cut off, completely separated from both God and man. It was to become necessary for me to sleep under bridges and on river banks again. To panhandle once more on the street for nickels and dimes. To buy cheap wine. To go late at night to the back door of some restaurant and scratch through the garbage can to get food because the little money that I had couldn't be wasted like that. But on July 24th, 1968, because the beautiful God that you gave me in AA years, years ago is a God of love. And because in spite of all my wrongness and all my rottenness, in his infinite mercy and kindness, he has always dealt very gently with me. Because this beautiful God, even on my meanest, drunkest day, loved me. On July 24th, 1968, he once more gave me the most precious thing that an alcoholic ever asked for or dreamed of. The gift of sobriety. And the only difference I think this time is that in July 1968 I accepted the terms. And I have some very strong feelings about why you and I are sober. I think after a certain length of time, whatever time it takes for you and I to learn how to take the principles of this beautiful program and apply them to our every thought, to apply them in all of our dealings, then our sobriety no longer belongs to just us. There are nine million or more just like us still out there. And that's why we're sober. With the sobriety, with this beautiful gift, we also accept a tremendous responsibility. Somewhere out there, there is one that can't identify with anybody but you. And if you don't make it, if you don't take this disease seriously, if you don't take this problem seriously, then you won't take your sobriety seriously. And chances are, when you meet him, you will have already wiped out his chances. Think about it. If there's a new man or a new lady here this morning, chances are I haven't said anything that reached you. But please, keep coming back. Because you belong. Look around you at these people. Look deep into their eyes. There's a light there. A light that one day, if you stay close, will warm you to the depths of your very soul. Keep coming back. There's help here. Because there's love here. 
And this, I think, is really what makes it work. And in AA, we have different kinds of love. First, there's our love, of course, for each other. And this is a tremendous thing. For among the membership of Alcoholics Anonymous, you find, find people from literally every walk of life. Professional people, laborers, professional women, housewives, successful businessmen, successful career women, and a lot of bombs like me. Yet here in AA, social position or financial standing is neither a hindrance nor help. For here in this beautiful fellowship, we're bound together by one common problem. And in our search together for the solution to that problem, there's born within the hearts of each one of us a feeling for one another. And that feeling is love. Then there's our love for God. And this too is a tremendous thing. Why else on the face of the earth this morning is there a group of people with a greater reason for loving God than you and me? But then there's still another love, far greater than both of these. God's love for us. And I hope that I'm never vain enough to try to explain God's love because it just can't be explained. Several years ago, while working at the tobacco market down in southern Georgia, I heard a story that to me exemplifies this particular love. It's the story of an old sharecropping farmer and his family that lived in the northern part of Georgia. And if any of you are familiar with that section of the country, you know as I do that from an agricultural standpoint, North Georgia is not the most blessed spot on earth. Man that digs a living from the ground fully deserves a few blessings that he gets. But as the story goes, this particular year when the crops were sold and the cotton seed and the fertilizer bills were paid, there was a little money left over. Not much, just five dollars. But it was the first time there'd ever been any left over since his family had been a family. And each one of them felt that it called for some kind of a celebration. But knowing too well the value of a dollar, they each knew that they couldn't go out and buy something. So they got out the Silverbuck catalog and they sat around the kitchen table and after much thumbing through the pages, they finally settled on one thing that they could all enjoy equally. It was a looking glass, a mirror. None of them had ever seen one. And they made out the order and they mailed it away and a few weeks later the postman blew the horn down at the foot of the hill one day and they went down and they got the package and then once again they gathered around the kitchen table and they opened it. Of course, Paul, being the head of the household, was the first one to see himself in the mirror. And when he saw himself for the first time in his life, all he said was, well, I'll declare. Then he handed it to his wife, and she looked, and she just smiled. She gave it to little sis, her teenage daughter, and she looked, and she giggled, and she preened. And then it was little Joe's turn. Little Joe was one of the gentle people, 
little fellow about 12, 13. But back when he was a wee small child, he'd been kicked in the face by a mule. And he wasn't a handsome child. And when he saw himself in the mirror for the first time, he honestly didn't know whether to laugh or cry. He looked at his mother and he said, Mom, did you know I looked like this? She said, yes, son. I know it all the time. He said, you know I was this ugly and you still loved me? She said, yes, son. I love you because you're mine. This, I think, must be the kind of love that God had for you and for me. For surely he has seen us in all of our ugliness. None of the wrong, rotten things that we did were hidden from him. He saw them all. Yet when the day came and we found ourselves flat of our backs, unable to even get up, much less stay up, we knew that day we couldn't go any further without help. We knew too there was no need to expect help from friends because all the friends were gone. Nor was there any need to expect help from family because the family too was gone. And that didn't leave anybody but God. And we hated to ask because we were ashamed to ask. But we did ask because we had to. Remember what happened. Without one word of reproach, without once reminding us of any of the wrong, rotten things we'd done to hurt him, to hurt others, and to hurt ourselves, without a moment's hesitation, he simply reached out a hand that held all the help that you and I will ever need. That hand is still there. It always will be. It's the hand of AA. To you and me, it meant the hand of our sponsors. To those still out there, it means your hand. These are the terms. That's why you and I are sober this morning. I'm glad I'm an alcoholic. I'm grateful for the years of loneliness, of having to wander endlessly drunk, without a family, without a home. Grateful for the time spent in jails and hospitals and insane asylums. Grateful even for that five years that I had to go back to that place called hell. Because rough though it may have been, it was a small price really to pay for what I have here today with you. I'm glad I'm an alcoholic because that alone enabled me to become one of you and a part of this beautiful thing we call AA. I belong in AA because I belong to you and you belong to me. And it's always been that way, really. 
Ever since that night you found me on the street corner and I had no place to go. And you took me with you and you brought me here and you told me I belonged. I would ask only that in a little while you join me out there where they are. For this is where AA is. And we owe it to them because they belong. I'm sorry it's taken me so long to say so little. But thank you so much for listening and for letting me share with you a little of what you've given me. Thank you for giving it to me. Thank you for everything on earth I have that's worth having. Thank you for everything on earth I know that's worth knowing. Thank you most of all just for being what you are, my family. And when you say your prayers tonight, please pray for me. I'll do the same thing for you. God bless you.